Futurized goes beneath the trends to track the underlying forces of disruption in technology, policy, business models, social dynamics, and the environment. I'm your host, Thrun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. In episode 76 of the podcast, the topic is the future of risk and resilience. Our guest is Chloe Demorowski, CEO of Disaster Recovery Institute. In this conversation, we talk about the future of risk and resilience, how to handle disasters, chronic stressors versus sudden shocks, and what organizations should be worrying about right now. We talk about risk management and how to increase resilience. We talk about opportunities from crisis and how organizations can survive and thrive in the next decade. Chloe, how are you today? I'm well, Trond. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. It's uh, another day for for some really serious discussions. Chloe, you have a very, very interesting background and your passion for risk. I'm going to dig this little bit into, you know, how did you get your appetite for studying risk? So here's here's what I think. I've been looking at your background. You clearly, you have founded Disaster Recovery Institute International, which is a big risk play. I didn't, uh, uh, I didn't found it. So was it, was, it was founded in 1988. Oh, right. But you're yeah. the president of it. But, yes. um, and you're a Forbes contributor. You are an adjunct uh, professor at NYU. Uh, you're a term member of CFR, the Council of Foreign Relations. You are part of the US-Japan Foundation, a bunch of uh, activity. Um, can I trace this interest in risk all the way back to your master's in international business at NYU or, or even back to your bachelor's degree? Where does this deep passion for understanding risk come from, Chloe? Well, that's a, that's a deep question, Trond. <laughs> so <laughs> I think it, it ultimately comes from similarly to my interest in nonprofit work, which is this urge to kind of take care of people at a macro level and looking out and kind of safeguarding against all of those things that could go wrong and figuring out how we can kind of strengthen our systems to better deal with them. I'm actually quite an optimistic person by nature, which is, I think, one of the reasons why I can focus on the bad things all the time, because I have this sort of underlying level set that, you know, we can persevere, we'll get through this, you know, there's never been a better time to be alive in human history, and we will, we will move forward. So that kind of helps me get through the day. Um, Well, it probably helps the people you talk to as well, because these topics that we're getting into, they're, they're no joke. No, it's, it can be really heavy. Conferences can be really heavy. We talk about a lot of dark stuff, and it's really varied, but the, the one consistent thing is that if this thing were to happen or this thing that did happen was really, really bad. So, um, you know, that, that does make it really Well, so heavy. everybody is focused on these things not happening or not happening as often as it comes to kind of, you know, these more regular natural disasters and, and stuff like that. Yeah. Look, um, We'll we'll get into risk, but before that, so you are in this business of risk, resilience, disasters, crises. There, there's a bunch of terminology that I wanted to kind of kick it off with. The first is, and I don't know if this comes from kind of UN language or where it comes from, but this ESG, so environmental, social, and governance risks. Just kick us off with that uh, as a term. What is that animal and uh, how important is this kind of bulk category of of issues? 
Sure. ESG. So this is definitely not a UN thing. It's more of a business thing, actually. And so right. it, it's directly related to the fact that for so long, since Milton Friedman and all of those ideas generally, companies have been maximizing shareholder value, maximizing profits at the expense of everything else, very blindly and very efficiently, just focusing on the financial bottom line. And so companies in their general way, course of doing business have then caused all kinds of external impacts or effects maybe they didn't intend or maybe that were very costly for other people or the world or broader society because they were just looking at financial profit um, at the expense of everything else. So the ESG movement is related to kind of corporate social responsibility as well. It's the idea of creating a triple bottom line. So you're not just focusing on financial returns, but you're also focusing on environmental and social returns and you're applying good governance in everything that you do. So thinking about not doing any harm, thinking about issues like climate change or the long-term impacts rather than just kind of maximizing profits this quarter. Because if you're going to create some really negative issue in the long run, maybe it's worth you know generating slightly less profit, but doing something in a way that's going to be more responsible. Can we, though, cover what I was sort of, uh, I guess, nodding towards, the uh, the UN Sustainability Goals? Because they are kind of related to uh, at least some of the policy proposals that I know you're, you're you're talking about and we'll get into, which is, you know, how can you price in risk and stuff like that. What What is the current state of these uh, sustainability goals when it comes to the risk aspect? Uh, do they all touch on risk? Are they related, all of them, to risk? Yes. Well, they can all be destabilized by risk. So the United Nations has what's called the Sustainable Development Agenda, and this was created in 2015, and it's their goals between now and 2030. So before that, they had the Millennium Development Goals, which were you know, set in 2000, and they were looking at, okay, what are we as the UN going to broadly focus on? What do we think national governments should focus on in order to make the world a safer place? So the Sustainable Development Goals, obviously, was a really intense negotiation with all of the member states having to come to some sort of agreement on what the kind of the global strategy is for moving humanity forward. Hmm. And so very simply, you know, the top few, the first one is no poverty. The second one is no hunger. The third is good health. The fourth is quality education. The fifth is gender equality. And it goes on and on with all of these kinds of goals. They would relate to ESG and the private sector, in, uh, usually through the work of what's called the Global Compact, uh, where companies are going to you know, pledge that they're also working toward the sustainable development goals rather than kind of against them um, in their own work. The idea that business can be a force for good and not just be kind of um, working against what the United Nations or what governments are trying to do to kind of better you know, the plight of the average person, for example. So, so in terms of how they relate to risk, um, risk and resilience, which resilience is sort of the more optimistic way of thinking about risk is something that could happen that would be bad. Resilience is our ability to bounce back from some sort of shock or problem. And so resilience is something that kind of um, is mentioned in a number of them, but the ones that I really look at in particular are um, sustainable cities and communities, climate action, and then, of course, um, partnerships for the goals, because you really can't have um, resilience without partnering across sectors, because disasters don't just affect, affect one sector, they affect all of them. Hmm. 
We're we're going to go into a, a report that you I think you're you're about to publish this year, which I I think is an annual report that comes out of DRI. But before that, and sort of more generally, what are the topics kind of that top of your mind right now? What are what are the topics that interest you the most uh, in terms of these disaster or these various risks? Sure. So I think it's important to know that um, DRI, what we teach is an impact-based approach to, to risk. So instead of looking at, okay, these are all of the things that could go wrong and let's mitigate them. It's kind of saying, all right, this bad thing happened to my organization. How do I persevere in spite of that? So I lost access to my facility and everything in it. You know, can I still continue to operate? Um, you know, I lost access to my technology what kind of workarounds do I have in place? So those are kinds of the effects-based models. But of course, we end up looking at risk and causes because you can't not, right? Um, and we sort of look at broad categories of risk. It's not just natural disasters, but that's often what people think of. Um, when the UN talks about something called disaster risk reduction, they're really just talking about natural disasters, hurricanes, floods, typhoons, earthquakes, wildfires, etc. But we also look at cyber, cyber resilience. So not so much the technology aspects of it, although that's part of it, but how that actually impacts your organization's ability to deliver the product or service that you're charged with, with delivering, because we all are so reliant on technology. Then we look at public health issues like the pandemic. So everyone's been very busy during COVID-19 and the response to it and the ongoing response to it in dealing with a lot of these issues. It can be everything from you know terrorist attacks to um, nuclear meltdowns to you know, asteroids falling on Earth. It doesn't really matter. Just something that would go really wrong that would have a big impact on your organization's ability to deliver your core mission and function. Mm. So back to a little bit what you're actually doing for, for your clients, so organizations that are not just sort of experiencing these as like uh, abstract things, but that they have to continue business in some way. How uh, should uh, or how do you recommend an organization handle various types of disasters? I know you, you have told me that you uh, split it into kind of two categories of disasters. First of all, there are the chronic ones and then the sudden, sudden ones. Can you explain a little bit what that distinction means for, for a business? And, and then, you know, what should organizations do? Uh, well, what should they worry about right now? Maybe it's just kind of a concrete thing. Uh, what are you advising people to do right now in, in this situation of, well, certainly there's, there are some s sudden shocks that have become uh, more chronic, I guess, if you think about the COVID. Yeah. So I guess the, the distinction, so this is something that's really used when we talk about urban resilience, and it's really helpful to think about it in that context, the idea of a chronic stressor versus a sudden shock. So a chronic stressor is something that is negatively in, in, uh, impacting a city's overall health and their overall resilience. So this could be chronic poverty. This could be a lack of affordable housing. Um, you know, there's um, lots of widespread violence, different issues like that that are just kind of ongoing for a city. Whereas a sudden shock is something like, you know, a terrorist attack that happens and then you have to deal with it and it distracts you from everything else because it's sudden and it's urgent and you have to deal with it even if you're weakened by your chronic stressors, you have to find a way to, to respond and to recover and to be resilient as a city in the face of that. So, that's so you work also with cities. You don't just work with private organizations. You work with an entity like a city as well? So we're a, a training institute. So anyone who comes to us and, and signs up for our classes and then gets our certification can do that. And our largest sectors are financial institutions, healthcare organizations, government, 
and then consulting generally serving those other three. So it's really regulated um, industries, large um, organizations, and then lots and lots of government, both at the, you know, um, at the national level, but also at the state and local level. So we do kind of work with everyone who's trying to keep an organization up and running to deliver their, you know, their mission essential functions. And certainly government agencies don't have the option to just sort of fold and fail and say, we're out of business, we're not responding today. They have to be there no matter what. And and in this training, how to increase resilience on an organizational level, is it just about uh, kind of systemic awareness and awareness of each individual in the organization of the risks, or are there more tangible things that over time increase the resilience uh, level of an organization that would kind of tangibly set one organization A uh, in a completely different situation? You know, uh, when when you know the same disaster strikes, but the responses can be radically different if if you have had such training. Definitely. So with a lot of these organizations that I talk about, they have whole teams of resilience professionals in place who are just charged with thinking about kind of doomsday scenario planning all the time. And often this is for regulatory reasons, but also it's because they've experienced things. Um, And now, obviously, it's going to be a lot more popular, especially with organizations that maybe weren't putting as much focus on it before the pandemic because there was just so much widespread impact on absolutely every type of business. And so these are the people who are saying, okay, you know, something has happened and we can't like COVID is a great example, because like I said, if you can't have access to your facility, what do you do? Do you have a backup site? Do you send people to a backup site or do you have them work from home? Is their technology enabled in such a way that they can work from home? And with a lot of these highly regulated um, industries, they, they don't, they weren't before the pandemic, right? They would issue desktops. They had, you know, really um, computers that people needed to like have a lot of power, multiple monitors, a whole setup. And so suddenly when they're having to kind of take that home, it becomes this big challenge that they ne- not weren't necessarily prepared for, especially when they're having to do that across the entire organization and across the world all at once, which is sort of like a worst case scenario when it comes to that. And it might sound like something really mundane, but it really does affect an organization's ability to continue doing whatever it is that they're doing. Because I don't know about you, but I can't go you know, an hour without using technology in some way to, to um, continue to do business. I think we're all in that same boat. We are, Chloe. And you know, I'm interviewing a lot of uh, innovation leaders right now. Some of them are saying, though, that there's a golden uh, kind of there's a silver lining because uh, a lot of the very experimental sort of demo like small contracts they had with larger organizations have suddenly turned into very real implementations of technology that actually isn't experimental. It, it was just that there was a reticence and a, you know skepticism and you know the regular budgetary approval processes in these organizations. Guess what? A sudden shock across the system with no choice leaves you with a checkbook that eventually, once you realize what this crisis is all about, they are going to have to invest for the long term. And in some cases, they are investing for the short and medium term. Uh, And some of them are making really smart choices, you know, kind of ushering the industry uh, in a new direction. Have you seen any any of that on the technology side? Yeah, so this is where I'm going to sound really optimistic, right? So every crisis also presents an opportunity. Um, a lot of bad things happen, of course, and a lot of people are negatively affected, and there's the, the tragic side of it. 
but it is also an opportunity for us to reevaluate the systems and the processes that we habitually use. And do we have a, a real opportunity there to not just revert back to the status quo, but act, to actually make a shift? It's one of the few right. times where we really can, and especially with these large organizations, they don't move rapidly. They don't move quickly. A lot of these technologies have been in place for a long, long time. It's just the adoption was really slow because of habits, because of organizational patterns, because of budgets and, and so on and so forth. Like I mentioned with the desktops, right? It's kind of yeah. unthinkable today. So it, it but, does But on the other hand, Chloe, it, uh, a crisis doesn't solve all problems. Uh, oh, it doesn't, it doesn't solve any problems, but what it does do is present an opportunity for change. Right. If no, you, I mean, I guess what I'm talking about is implementing technology or implementing change is famously, you know, or org change. These are not easy things to do. So surely you must face this as well in your training. It's not just a matter of having a nice little training session and then everyone jolly who, go, you know, goes ahead and, and the organization is fantastic and, you know, 30% better. It's, it's, it's hard work. Yes. And so that's why we look at kind of the planning process and the scenarios and you sit through and you do the planning and you write it down, you do kind of an assessment of the organization. You know, what are the risks that affect each department and our organization? What's most important to us? And if it's like, how would this risk impact that? And, um, you know, how do we kind of recover from that? Um, what do we prioritize and so forth? So you have to do that analysis first and create a strategy and a plan. But if nobody knows what's in that plan, the content of it, other than, you know, maybe the author, it's not very useful to the organization. So that's why kind of testing and exercising becomes so important because we have to use, um, we have to get people habitually used to, to doing these things, which is why, like, for example, with, with my organization, you know, we're a smaller organization, we're more nimble, it's easy. And um, but one of the things that we did do for a very long time is we do have offices, but generally everyone on the team would work from home one day a week. So you're just used to bringing your technology home. Uh, you're used to, you know, what that means, what that looks like. You have a kind of a home setup and it's easy to do. And so um, where our major offices are, New York City and Michigan, it became really easy to say, okay, well, there's a big snowstorm. <laughs> Those happen in Michigan a lot. Um, but everyone's comfortable working from home. They have the whole setup. They can do it. In New York City, same thing. We've had, we had a terrorist attack right, at, right outside of our office. We had a, um, a steam pipe explosion a block away we have, that led to an asbestos issue. But the team was really nimble and comfortable because we exercised it so frequently as a part of our process that we were able to be flexible in the way that we did, thing and, uh, did things. And then, therefore, that recovery was seamless. So that's a small example, but it ends up being kind of um, has a similar impact for larger organizations if they take that that same mentality and apply it to their own processes. What about on the macro level? Uh, you know, I know that you've been engaging a little bit on this discussion of can you price in climate risk or you know negative externalities generally, and and, and also could you price in positive externalities like? What's the price of biodiversity or vaccinated populations or or indeed what we talked about just now, you know, the sustainability goals and, you know, sustainable development? How can you price in a positive externality like that? Do you think about these systemic factors as well in, in your frameworks? I certainly think about them all the time <laughs> as a professor and as someone who's concerned. And, and that's a lot of what we do in terms of our policy work with the United Nations um, when we brief Congress or we work with government officials to try to educate them on what they're looking at. 
if you're looking at the resilience professionals who work for various organizations, they're going to have to look at their organization first and how things impact their organization. And for many organizations, a disaster that affects only that organization and not their competitors or other peers or other types of organizations is probably going to be worse for them in terms of their market position than something that's affecting everybody at the same time. So they're going to prioritize looking at those kinds of risks. And a lot of that is like IT failure, right? So like if you do something wrong and you lose access to all of your technology and all of your records and your customers are fine, they're going to gain, I mean, your competitors are fine, they're going to gain market share. So that's, again, kind of that short-term thinking, like I said, that leads organizations to not look at kind of the longer-term, bigger macro risks like climate change. And when and there's a mismatch there, too, because when you look at climate change in particular, it, it regularly comes down at like the bottom of our surveys of what uh, resilience professionals at organizations are concerned with. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. They're looking at the kind of shock outcome of climate change, like extreme weather, and that they're much more concerned about because they're saying, okay, it's tangible. We're having a very active hurricane season in the Atlantic right now, the most active on record. You know, we're into the Greek letters of the alphabet. I just heard, uh, you know, Hurricane Epsilon this morning. And so um, that's the kind of short-term effect that people are really looking at. Whereas um, something like climate change is going to be a longer term impact. So it might affect real estate buying decisions, for example. It should be. Um, organizations should be taking that to, into account. And maybe they're starting to, but I'm not at all sure. Um, one of the reasons I think for this as well is that so many of the, the scientific community and the policy community, all of the horizons, all of the forecasts are so long term that they're just not actionable for businesses. So unless you're making, you know, a 100-year investment because you're a nuclear power plant, you're just not thinking in 100-year terms. You're thinking about this year, maybe three to five years, maybe 10 years, but you're not thinking 100 years out. So I think that it's really important to kind of translate that to what does that risk mean now? What does that mean for the 2020s? And how should organizations be thinking about it in the 2020s? Um, rather than th saying, like, this is what it's, is going to happen by 2100, because most organizations are just not looking that far ahead. Hmm. So you, uh, you are about five years into your annual risk, uh, your global risk and resilient uh, trends report. What, what are the headlines this year and what are the top risks and how do you, how do you measure this? Is this when you, uh, again, ask your clients, basically, what are the top risks on your mind? Uh, so, you know, how is it measured and, and what are the, the top line risks? Yeah, so we do this every year. Um, we survey resilience professionals, and they work at every major brand name you can think of, every type of government organization, and they're really scattered across the world. And we ask them, you know, what what is keeping you up at night? And I think it's really interesting that um, almost consistently, pretty much every year, technology takes the top spots, and then uh, it, it, it's cyber attacks. Um, it's IT failure, as I said, um, it could be like a, a you know state-sponsored attack that's impacting like a private organization, um, which is something that would be really challenging to respond to because you know they're not necessarily um, empowered to retaliate against you know a, a malicious state actor, for example. It's sort of outside of their purview, and yet they're potentially victims of it. But then there's all these other risks, right? Extreme natural disasters end up being on there pretty consistently, pretty regularly. Um, in fact, for this next report that we're going to publish soon, which you haven't seen, I actually broke out extreme natural disasters because I wanted to know, um, is it, is it, you know, the, the major, all the, the, the damage that's caused is, you know, uh, wind, water, fire, and seismic. 
So I wanted to at least divide it out into those four and see like, okay, what are you most concerned about? What is actually causing the most damage? And um, it's actually wind uh, made the top 10. So people are really concerned about, you know, the, the wind damage um, to their organizations. Climate change always comes really low. Um, but pandemic, of course, obviously <laughs> went from being number 13 on the list for 2020, shot all the way to position number one for 2021. I think that will surprise no one. Why was pandemic number 13 um, before? Why did it not make the top 10? Um, it had been a while since we'd had a real kind of global threat. We had Ebola, we had Zika, but really was um, many organizations kind of in, in the global north had, had not really updated their plans since maybe SARS. Um, so they just weren't looking at it. Maybe, maybe they updated them for, for uh, avian influenza, but often SARS, they hadn't looked at them in you know, 10, 15 years if they had a plan. Is there so, something uh, human about this that we always prepare for the last disaster that happened to us? Like if we've had something really impactful happen in our life or in our organization or, you know, to the world, then we're very focused on that. And we put in place some sort of disaster plan to mitigate that one specific thing, even though statistically there is no more probability that there'll be a new pandemic next year than that there would be a massive flood next year. Right. So right. it's kind of irrational, really, what goes on in our head here. It is irrational. So I, we actually talk to our resilience professionals about trying to use that very strategically because it is an opportunity for them as kind of the doomsday preppers within organizations to say, okay, this thing happened. We were not prepared. We didn't have the budget. We didn't have the staff. We didn't have the resources. We weren't exercising and planning accordingly. These are all the things that we could have done. These are the lessons learned that would have made it better this time around. But when they're presenting it, saying, okay, we have to make sure something like that never happens again, that's where the impact-based planning becomes really important. Because even though the risk has the risk changes, a lot of the impacts are the same, right? If you had fl a flood or a pandemic, both of them mean that you can't access your facility. So that's an impact that is actually the same from an operational perspective. So you can prepare for that. So when you're kind of pitching what we're going to look at and what we're going to, to budget for, it has to be something that is broad-based enough that you can apply it to multiple scenarios because we don't know what's going to happen next. Um, we don't know what the next threat will be, but we can prepare you know, our reaction to it um, and we can prepare accordingly. So I know that this is probably not where you spend most of your time, but there is this, you gave me this clue about doomsday preppers. The, the prepper community is an interesting one, and they're not just individuals, they're communities, and there's uh, actually numbers of them. Uh, is this year kind of the revenge of the preppers, or would you say that it's, it's still sort of like within the realm of what actually could be handled by more systemic governmental and organizational planning and there's no need to start uh, individual kind of uh, prepper networks to prepare for for all these things that are going to face us in the, even in this decade. Well, I think it's really interesting that culturally we disparage preppers, right? right. Um, and and obviously you can take this to a level of paranoia that can be too far, you know, buying the luxury bungalows that are underground, uh, you know, somewhere in Kansas or Missouri at an undisclosed location in case there's a, a nuclear winter so you can retire there. Right, that's taking it very, very far. Well, the but, problem with it is actually not just that, Chloe. It's just that I, I thought about a lot of this around my book. The problem is just their life is going to be not so interesting, right? So, right, it's I not going to be a fulfilling life. Problem. Yeah, one of the they, things they, that we're seeing with the pandemic is that we need each other, right? So, even if you're able yeah. to save just yourself, like 
we're a community, we're a global community, we need each other. And so it's not going to be a very fulfilling life. That said, that does not erase individual responsibility in any sort of disaster. So FEMA will talk about this all the time, which is that, you know, the the government's not going to be there to come and save you after some sort of major disaster. They're kind of, they're a few days in. FEMA might start uh, setting up shop like a week in. Your local first responders are maybe going to come 48 hours in maybe earlier, but you can't count on it. So that means every family needs to be prepared with some of the basics that'll get you through uh, the early days of a, of a shutdown for a pandemic or a hurricane or anything like that, which is, you know, a store of food and water in the house for every individual, some basic first aid materials. Um, you know, you need, you need kind of, uh, you need enough of your prescriptions You need a full tank of gas if you live somewhere where you rely on a car for transportation. These are the kinds of things that we can all do. Um, You know, you need backup power of some kind, whether that be flashlights or generators or whatever it is that you're doing. Um, Go bags for the family if you live in like an earthquake zone. It's about understanding what what the threats are in your area and then being prepared for them. We all have a responsibility to do that um, in order for us to be resilient um, as people, frankly. What about on the individual level, this this kind of appetite or, or resilience uh, around risk uh, surely will vary. I mean, if we take the case of travel, right? I mean, for instance, uh, you could argue, okay, uh, you know, I will not travel again. But, but I do, but you know, the travel pattern in the US, it passed a million travelers daily, I think yesterday. So people are clearly to a some extent now starting to travel again yet you know in a you know in a rising pandemic individually do you think that it's going to be basically a ratio between preparedness and resilience and then risk appetite or risk preparedness on an individual level because it's not just an organizational issue this is right uh, organizations are asking of their workers come in don't come in if they come in, if they travel, if they cross the United States, um, there are going to be certain groups that are going to say, regardless of my risk profile, I'm not willing to do that. And and we have seen this with teachers and, and other groups. There are so, some are just saying, this is not worth it anymore. How do you think that's going to play out over the next decade? I mean, are we going to see, essentially, is it a is it a kind of a just a much more important variable in, in how organizations need to deal with their employees. They're going to essentially have to have a, a box in the questionnaire saying, what's your risk profile? Because presumably an organization needs people with a balance between taking some risk because otherwise they don't get any work done. And then obviously these complete lack of risk people uh, are going to sit in their attics and basements if anything happens, because they were shocked by these uh, kind of events of 2020. How do you see that playing out? Well, I think what we've seen from pandemics in, the, in history is that eventually things do go back to normal. At some point, we, we resume our lives. Um, and I think travel will resume at, the, at that level. I do think it will be somewhat impacted for the next few years um, in the sense that um, you know, organizations are still not going to allow for non-essential travel across the board, at least through, I think most of them are at least budgeting in terms of 2021, nothing for the first six months, and then maybe a slight resumption in the, in the latter half, but they're really only budgeting for that, not really anticipating it. So I don't see travel picking up until 2022. But I think what we'll see ultimately within organizations is a real divide 
between the kind of the work from home support staff and then the sort of business people who are client facing, who need to be uh, working collaboratively, creative teams and so forth. We're going to start to see real uh, divides within, you know, our, our workforce in that way. So organizations are going to be looking to shift a lot of people to work from home, which is going to have a totally different uh, impact on their careers, on their networks and so on and so forth. Some people might love that opportunity. Other people might not, but I think um, we will start to see a shift. So you'll see people who are kind of willing to take on the risk, willing to travel, extroverted, really like to work with people, like to meet with clients, like that, that is going to resume because I think that it's really hard to keep people apart. We, we do love to interact with each other and these little video squares are great, but they're, they're, no, they're no substitute for the real thing. So I, I do think that we will start to see that resume, but there's going to be a split in the workforce for sure in terms of who gets to travel and who doesn't. Um, slightly different topics. I just wanted to to bring it up. I read in one of your uh, the things that you, you've written recently about these. Uh, you said wind was a was an increasing risk, but also water, obviously, and floods. I just find this idea of a five hundred year flood happening three times in Houston. You said between you know nineteen seventy nine, two thousand and one, twenty seventeen. Isn't it time to change the definition of some of these things because? How is it possible that a 500-year flood can happen three times in one place? I mean, doesn't that mean that this 500-year flood was a very optimistic notion at some point? Or, or is it just that all of these concepts, they are sort of statistical only until reality hits? There's a few things going on here. One is that um, when you look at what a 500-year flood is, it doesn't mean that this kind of flood happens once every 500 years, it actually means that there's a one in 500 chance every year that this kind of a flood will occur. So, oh, I didn't even realize. No, that. I know nobody knows this. It's a terrible name for it. It doesn't like they need to rename it um, in terms of how they refer to it because nobody really understands that. Um, but that said, obviously, climate change is changing things. We're seeing sea level rise. We're seeing changes in, in weather patterns. And that's affecting all of it and our ability to kind of forecast and predict. We know that extreme weather is increasing and we need to plan for it accordingly. Now, Houston is a very interesting example because Houston um, has grown very rapidly in recent days. There's a lot of innovation coming out of Houston. There's a lot of people moving to Houston. A lot of industries are there. And why? Why? Because it's cheap. Why is it cheap? Because there are not as many regulations. Read, there are not as many building codes. You can operate more cheaply. You can pay lower wages. You can pay less for your house. You can build whatever you want, right? It's Texas. Texas is gaining a lot of people for this reason, lower taxes. Um, but then you see the cost with something like Harvey. And so I, I think a lot of people don't necessarily connect the two, right? Harvey is an act of God. A hurricane is an act of God. It's something that just happens once in a while, and then we can kind of get back to normal. But that said, if you pave over you know, what used to be swampland that, you know, that swamps are serve as kind of a, a place for water to go during some sort of flooding act. If you've paved over all the swampland to build cheaper housing, well, you know, concrete that is not permeable, that is not porous is going to lead all of the water where somewhere it's going to. Well, uh, Chloe, is that, that again points to the definitions, right? So we have been measuring hurricanes, and I can't remember what the scale is called, uh, but we all know it as like hurricane strength, one, two, three, four, five, you know, uh, five. 
But that measures wind strength, doesn't it? And it doesn't measure impact. So what you're saying is Houston has just this very unfortunate physical environment that is built out with asphalt everywhere. And, and thus, a Category 2 hurricane landing the wrong way in Houston. Uh, with and, and if hurricanes are getting wetter, uh, you know, now you're talking a completely different thing. Like it could have a fairly mild wind strength, but if it's sustained over a long period of time, and landing on all this asphalt, you know, right? And landing in an urban area, because like if you look area. at earlier this year, um, Hurricane Laura, for example, Hurricane Laura, you know, it didn't hit a major urban area; it hit the countryside, and so there are fewer people living there um, who are easier to evacuate because there are fewer of them. But there's also more lat- natural landscape, bayou, and so forth that absorbs that excess water. So the floods are not as severe. It's kind of like, you know, when we obviously the, the old Katrina example was just so terrible because, you know, the, the levees, the levees um, sort of acted as, as a bathtub rim collecting the water in New Orleans and there was nowhere for it to go. So it's how we build and how we conceive of cities um, that shape our resilience. But obviously there's a cost associated with that, how you build things and what you require organizations to do and how you fund it. Is it funded privately? Is it funded through taxes? Um, and does that, and, and what does that do to your business and investment climate? So it's always kind of uh, weighing all of those things and, and making choices. Well, this leads to me uh, to, to one of these very, very big questions. If you look at the next decade and beyond, uh, what's going to happen with, with risks? And specifically, let's just forecast right now that if we're going to deal with all these things on a systemic level, our infrastructure in various ways will have to be upgraded. And I mean in the U.S. and, and worldwide, whether it's levees or, you know, making the choices of better building materials for roads uh, that are combining, I guess, you know, efficiency with with uh, kind of bio, uh, you, you know, water flow through capability or many, many other things. How do you see this being, well, one, financed and number two, the kind of systemic thinking you need so that one uh, hand is not doing one thing and the other is then, you know, basically just canceling each other out because maybe there's just uncoordinated initiative. So you could have some advanced uh, levy structure going on one end, but then someone else builds the skyscraper on the other. And then these things just don't, don't, don't match up. I mean, even in the U S it's pretty recognized by both parties that, infrastructure in the U.S. is not really in a fantastic state. But you could also say that's an enormous opportunity. But are we at a place, in your estimation, where all of the right decisions would be made, presuming people started building again? Would we have the theoretical framework in place to actually build smart infrastructure? Or is that actually a kind of a scientific question at this point? No, I think I, I think it is a resilience question, and, and infrastructure is a really large part of, of kind of where we live, live and how we think. When you talk about resilience, um, one of the reasons is the the kind of idea that hazards are natural, but disasters are man made. Like the hurricane is a hazard; it will happen. We know it will happen, right? The disaster is if we fail to prepare our systems for it and to respond to it. And obviously, infrastructure plays a really big part of that. You know, similarly, building in areas where wildfires are likely to occur, right? Um, So when we take, uh, think about our approach to rebuilding infrastructure, and there is an opportunity now for us to kind of upgrade our infrastructure, resilience thinking has to be a part of that. And there is a value proposition there. It was measured very recently. 
that um, an investment of a dollar uh, in resilience planning leads to savings of $7. And the wow. reason that it does that, you have to factor this in, right? In so much of our planning, we don't factor in these shocks that happen. But they happen like every decade, right? These major like global financial crisis, September 11th, we have uh, the pandemic, right? Something happens like give or take every 10 years at a major global level. We have wars, we have famines, we have all these things. So they have to be factored into our pricing. If we think of them as acts of God, one-time things, we insure the risk away, we don't factor it in, then it's going to, it's, it's not, we're not going to adequate, adequately price in, you know, failing to add those few resilience measures in when we're designing and building our infrastructure in the first place, um, because we're sort of like wishing away the risk or mitigating it in some way, like I said, by making the insurers take it on. So um, financial markets, investors, the investor community, and the insurance market, they have a real role to play here in terms of putting market pressures on um, these you know, the companies that are designing infrastructure or investing in it and governments as well in terms of what they will insure um, or what they will finance and asking for these kinds of measures. And I don't think we're quite there yet, but I think we're getting closer. Yeah, I've been reading a little bit of the reports coming out of the largest reinsurers, right? Mm -hmm. Those are the guys that are the insuring the insurance companies. Yep. So they are really thinking about these things. I'm assuming you, if you, you want to talk to somebody in the crowd. business community who really yeah. has always as long been talking about climate change, it's the reinsurers. Yeah, because yeah. they are faced with these very bad scenarios when when the the real you know, well when the when the real thing goes goes down, then mm -hmm. that's that they're picking up the bill. Um, so. Are you, are you still optimistic on the next decade? I, I find it kind of incredible, and I love to have, I love to have your take on how you, how you can be optimistic right now. So this is 2020. Um, we have a million people, uh, you know, uh, perish from a pandemic uh, in the U.S. We have 210,000 as of now. It's an incredible time to be optimistic. How do you, how do you do that? So I, I, I'm a student of history, and I think back about history. I mean, the Spanish flu infected a third of the global population. A third. We're not there. We're not there with coronavirus. We're also, um, this one is not as bad as it could have been. Like, if it was something as, as deadly as the Spanish flu, um, we'd be seeing much higher mortality rates. Um, we're also an innovative people. Like we, we were able to move so much of our core process and infrastructure and services to um, work from home, to, to be able to continue. And a lot of sectors are managing to continue. There are lots and lots of challenges and lots and lots of problems. And I don't mean to diminish those. This is affecting a lot of individuals in very real ways. And the impacts are going to be strikingly unequal. And I worry a lot about rising inequality. Um, and that impact on systems, that is also very predictable um, with something like this and, and is something that leaders should have seen coming and, and should have been prepared for and should have been thinking about a lot harder um, before this happened. But at the same time, I think that, you know, in terms of history, literacy rates are higher. Um, you know, food production is still much better. Um, obviously, there are threats to it, but somehow we have managed. Um, we still managed to be lifting people out of poverty COVID is going to impact that and set that back for a while, but hopefully we'll be able to bounce back. Um, there are all kinds of challenges, but we're also finding ways to live better. I mean, if you read about 
you know, what life was like in 18th century France and compare it to today, there's no comparison. So I, I do think that, that things are getting better and things will continue to get better. Maybe that's naive of me, but I'll take it. No, I, I like that point of view. I mean, there are so many interesting things starting to emerge if you just uh, dig a little and think a little, uh, you know, uh, around what's happening right now. I mean, one, one thing is, right, uh, I think it's this week, the FDA has their first meeting to discuss these new classes of vaccines, particularly, right, the mRNA vaccines of Pfizer and Moderna. There's a, there's an argument, you know, had the pandemic come just five years later, these things would have been approved already. And, you know, th that's a completely different, it changes the ballgame for vaccines because they don't have to be uh, grown in the old fashioned way. They can, you know, if they now do succeed, they can be produced much faster. So arguably there's a lot of science here that had it only been advanced by five years, we may not have even been in this situation. And, and you could sort of say the same for, for many areas that we have, we have actually made. And because of this, perhaps will make progress that, could start to matter for the real one. Let's say this big pandemic that we're we're both thinking of, which would have an Ebola-like lethality and a contagiousness like a, you know, like a very very bad flu. I mean, that kind of thing would today in 2020 would devastate the world population, but perhaps even just five to seven to eight to nine years from now. But if we take this opportunity, right, with COVID-19 right. and don't let people just forget about it, if we actually do preach some of those lessons of personal preparedness and try to get people to think about, okay, what is my strategy? Am I keeping stocks at home regularly of, 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 of you know, the, the food and that water that I need? I'm up to date on my prescriptions. I have plans with my family for how we get in touch with each other. All of these things are so important. And if we use this kind of as a as a test of our of our ability to to be resilient as individuals, as families, as communities, as companies, um, you know that will help us to face whatever comes next. Mm. I have uh, somebody on the show uh, tomorrow who studies brands, and they looked at how brands are increasingly being challenged to respond to social issues. How would you say uh, the fortune? Uh, 2000 or, you know, kind of just the, the largest 1000 companies perhaps in, in the world, are they all unilaterally now involved in these risk debates or is it still, you know, they all kind of have it on their, uh, you know, ESG is like a little thing, corporate social responsibility, of course, they have these little reports, but they're not all doing very serious training work and getting involved. I mean, not necessarily with you, but it, is it across the board now a um, full awareness of, no. of that this is risk? Uh, no. I, I think often risk is very splintered within large organizations. They look at different categories of risk in totally different places within the organization. So mm. they have operational risk in one place, technological risk in one place. They have strategic risk and, and kind of crisis management in another place, uh, you know, reputational hazards and so forth. And then financial risk is being handled by another department. And do they actually communicate and talk regularly? Is there an integrated overall holistic approach to risk? In most organizations, I would say no, people are siloed uh, within their teams and you know they're competing in some senses for budget and for um, you know primacy within the organization. So uh, I, I don't think that necessarily they're, they're as prepared as they could be if they kind of mer not merged, but like had all of these different risk, um, teams working more closely together. 
they don't generally. And so what's your strategy to make to make sure that COVID doesn't just become another of those compartmentalized risks? Because as impo- as as kind of all encompassing as it seems right now, you are of course right that at some point we will put it on a shelf and say COVID was COVID. It had these things. Everyone will kind of have their own story. How do we avoid that this just becomes uh, uh, another risk that just is put aside and said, you know, we have now understood most of it, but this other disaster is completely unrelated? So what is actually really um, encouraging to me as as a result from our latest survey, which will be published um, at the end of this year, is that um, we saw that many organizations were saying that their pandemic plan was, if they had one, was outdated and and was not like they were not ready to, to, to use it to deal with COVID. And yet what we saw is that because they had sort of this impacts-based planning that was more general, that was much more updated, they were able to respond effectively as organizations because they were using that impact-based approach, um, which is a really um, positive result from our perspective, that they were able to kind of use some of these broader principles to respond to something that was you know, nuanced and, and different and uh, in, in a way that COVID is. And, and pandemics are kind of like many other t- categories of risk will manifest themselves more similarly. Pandemics are kind of the weird one. Like if you think about, you know, an evacuation of your people from a terrorist incident, incident or a natural disaster or something like that, it's generally about like counting your people, getting them together, transporting them, checkpoints and gathering, right? People together. A uh, pandemic is one where we all have to kind of come together by staying apart. So that does make it a little bit, um, you know, a different way. You have to respond dif- very differently in that sense. But I think that um, organizations kind of were able to pick up on that pretty quickly if they had a robust planning mechanism in place. Hmm. Those organizations that did not have that kind of in- planning infrastructure in place, which is smaller organizations, you know, medium-sized firms and less regulated industries, which were particularly hard hit in this case, think retail, um, you know, they were caught much more flat-footed. So hopefully they will be making more of an investment in resilience planning in the future and not just think of it as sort of a cost-generating uh, area of the business, but actually a really important part of protecting uh, the revenue-generating um, areas of the company. Chloe, my last question is this. How, how do... How should people stay smart on this area and get involved in understanding risk? And how do you stay up to date on all these things? We've talked about mm-hmm. reading the reinsurers reports. Obviously, you run an organization that has a bunch of training available, and I'll link up all those things. But beyond that, it's a wide space. Uh, what are the best sources of not just information, but actually courses, training, um, and perhaps advice on, on, uh, on the systemic preparedness? Sure. I mean, I would say I I read things very widely. Um, It's not any one particular resource or source. There's a a lot of um, different sources that I go to. You know, obviously, I love the Global Risks Report out of the World Economic Forum, the Edelman Trust uh, Barometer. I look at that every year. Those are really cool. We put out a lot of reports, our our Global uh, Predictions and Trends reports that we put out every year, which I've referred to a few times, is a really useful report as well. And then obviously my Forbes column, <laughs> um, sure. which where I talk about risk and resilience in particular. But I think it's more about a mindset, right? The mindset is, okay, what if that doesn't work? What is the plan B? Um, is there is Has this been properly thought out? Or is this just, okay, such and such is going to change the world and it's going to happen tomorrow? Remember the conversation about driverless cars? 
weren't we supposed to all be in driverless cars right now? By I now, so. by like last I year. So. Yes. I mean, when I was reading that stuff, I was like, you're kidding. I, I just don't see it. You know, like my, you know, if I'm in a, in a, a car and they're following the algorithm and they, you know, they haven't updated their software, it's going to send them careening into like a road closure. Right. This has happened to me many times. If there was no driver there who could override that, like, where would I be? So I, I think that um, having a, a healthy dose of skepticism uh, when you're reading any of these plans or ideas or predictions is, is really an essential part of, being, of having and applying a risk mindset. Chloe, on that note, I think uh, applying judgment to whatever you're reading or being confronted with is probably good advice uh, for risk and resilience in, uh, in, any, in any domain. Thank you so much. This has been a very rich and certainly for me a reminder of all the different kinds of opportunities that risk presents. And I think I thank you for that. It's been a great pleasure, Trond. You have just listened to episode 76 of the Futurized podcast with host Trun Arne Unheim, futurist and author. The topic was the future of risk and resilience. Our guest was Chloe Demarovsky, CEO of Disaster Recovery Institute. In this conversation, we talk, talked about the future of risk and resilience, how to handle disasters, chronic stressors versus sudden shocks, what organizations should be worrying about right now, risk management and how to increase resilience, the opportunities from crises and how organizations can survive and thrive in the next decade. The takeaway is that in order to fully prepare for the next decade, there is really no way around developing a systematic take on risk and resilience. There's so much to know, but a first step is to be aware of the organizations and frameworks that exist to help executives map the risk and start developing approaches that might work no matter what happens to their organizational assets in a crisis. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, subscribe at futurize.co or in your preferred podcast player and rate us with five stars. If you like this topic, you may enjoy the precursor to this recording, episode 38, Disaster Risk Management, episode 11, Disruption Games Introduction, episode 14, Post-Pandemic Tech, episode 17, Pandemic Aftermath Introduction, episode 27, Future of Child Trafficking, or episode 32, Future Proof Your Business, Futurized, preparing you to deal with disruption.